when I was working for the National Football League, I was always incredibly impressed with how they took a, you know, four month a year sport and turned it into a 12 month a year sport. Right. No better than this week with the draft coming up and, you know, the, the combines and pro days and free agency and everything. Right. So in a sense, the NFL did that certainly purposefully. In a sense, college has done that unintentionally with NIL and the portal. People are talking about, you know, the portal right now because the window is open and, you know, half the Colorado football team seems to want to cram into that portal. That's Oliver Luck. He's worked for the NCAA. He's been an athletic director. He's been an athlete himself and a conference commissioner. He's our guest today on Konzano and Wilner, the podcast. What's better than one, John? Here's Johnny. Hmm. Nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. Super excited about the guest that we have on the podcast this week. I'm John Kenzano. You can read me at johnkenzano.com. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. Whatever works for you works for me. I say that all the time. I'm here with John Wilner, Bay Area News Group superstar. Pac12hotline.com. That's where you read him and find him. Wilner Oliver Luck, Andrew Luck's father, three children who uh, were college athletes, athlete himself, NFL career. Why are we having Oliver Luck on the podcast? You know, I'm not sure there's anybody better equipped to talk about the state of college sports than Oliver Luck. Played college, you know, college quarterback at West Virginia, NFL quarterback. Father of a quarterback, uh, father of other uh, of athletes in other sports, athletic director, West Virginia. He's the commissioner, current commissioner of an FCS conference, former executive vice president at the NCAA, former commissioner of the XFL, uh, general manager of NFL Europe, and he even has a, a NIL database. I mean, the guy knows college fo- college sports, college football like nobody else. And so, you know, I've had a ton of questions about how the NCAA works, about the direction this whole thing is going. I know you have too. And it doesn't seem like there's anybody better to provide the context that I think a lot of us need on the state of college sports. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk to him about the transfer portal and all the stuff that we've seen go on lately with it. Um, the NCAA, and, and maybe some questions about his kid, too, and, you know, what that was like from a parental standpoint. And so without further ado, Oliver Luck joining us on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for making time. Uh, why don't we just jump in? I'm going to ask you the question we've been asking our guests when they come on all the time. What did you make last summer? USC, UCLA, they announced they're leaving for the Big Ten Conference. What was your reaction when you heard that? Well, I, for me, as I'm sure for virtually everybody in, that, that follows college athletics, the millions of people that you know that that are engaged uh, with the sport, it was a, a, a surprise, and and it reminded me of two other incidents. One was the very quiet nature of the Texas Oklahoma decision. Right, everybody was shocked, surprised because nobody had uh, been aware of that, and then. In my own experience, when I was athletic director at my alma mater, West Virginia, uh, we were all shocked and surprised back in, I guess it was 2011 when, or 10 maybe, I can't remember exactly when uh, Pitt and Syracuse left the old Big East 
uh, to join the ACC. That was a surprise. We were all, you know, totally in the dark, you know, when that happened. So uh, the, the, you know, the, the surreptitious nature of how these sort of deals get put together uh, and, and the, the relatively small group of people that are aware of that. It's amazing in, the, in this universe that we live in today that that's, uh, that can be kept quiet. But I was, like everybody else, uh, surprised. All right. And I know you've been following the plight of the Pac-12 here in the last nine months. But what is your general view of realignment? Is it just going to continue every media contract cycle for decades and decades? Where is this thing going? Well, you know, uh, I'm an old history major, and I believe that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? So (laughs) I think think that, you know, go back in the last 20, 30, 40 years, uh, and and, you you can look at how conferences change their membership for a whole variety of reasons. I think that's going to continue. And it's going to continue because, you know, life isn't uh, static. It's dynamic. Schools change. Uh, you know, let, if, if we were doing this podcast 25 years ago uh, and we talked about the University of Texas at San Antonio, UTSA, the Roadrunners, we would probably say something along the lines of uh, Larry Coker became their coach. Right. Larry Coker, the great Miami coach, who I think won a national championship. And, yep. you know, that would be the extent of our knowledge of UTSA football. But boy, they've come out of nowhere. They're in a state that loves the sport of football, great high school players, great traditions. And all of a sudden you've got a, a, a program that at some point, you know, it could could rival uh, the flagship school uh, of that system, University of Texas at Austin. So things change. Universities change. Demographics change. Uh, you know, we don't probably talk enough in this business about demographic change and demography is destiny. But we don't talk about demographic change and how that should affect college athletics and the sports that are offered at, at schools, right? And sports don't remain static. They change and, you know, participation goes up and down and in some cases collapses, you know. There used to be boxing <laughs> at, at the university level. My dad participated in boxing at New Mexico State University back in the day. And, you know, so things change and without a mechanism to reflect that change, you know, we become sort of calcified, if that's the proper term. And, and do you think, I mean, do you envision the Big Ten, SEC, both eventually getting to 24 teams and the Power Five becoming the Power Three or Four or just two leagues, like English soccer with, with an upper division and a lower division? How do you How do you think this whole thing plays out? You know, I, I don't know. My crystal ball is as foggy as anybody's, and it's very difficult to sort of, you know, lay out what the next steps would be. Clearly... Uh, the Southeastern Conference and the Big Ten are, you know, are in a league of their own, uh, so to speak. And uh, but others are, are, you know, maintaining a pretty good, uh, you know, proximity to that. Uh, and, and money's not everything. Right. Uh, yeah. you, know, you can pay your, your your if you pay your coach 10 million or five million. You know, the ten million dollar coach isn't getting any better when he just got a, a raise. Right. Two X his salary. Uh, so, you know, I, I think there's still a a, a, a significant number of institutions that can compete in football, men's basketball, women's basketball, baseball, right? Baseball perhaps is, should be the poster child for smaller schools being able to really, you know, uh, make good decisions, get good players, at least, you know, in, in, in certain phases and, and compete with all the big boys. So I, I'm not, 
I'm not sure this will become just a duopoly, even if the money resembles a duopoly. The conference commissioners are interesting to me. Over the years, we've seen, you know, conference commissioners who had worked on campuses and and been in those athletic departments and, you know, had had a deep, rich background. Now we're seeing a different kind of conference commissioner. Um, what do you think makes a good conference commissioner, and why do you think the the business has moved in that direction? Well, I, I I've got to assume that the presidents who ultimately decide on on you know commissioners have expressed either you know sort of subtly or very clearly uh, privately or publicly have expressed uh, their interest in getting uh, you know commissioners who have an ex- who have experience in professional sports and broadcasting and and sort of those business lines uh, that um, are critical to you know to a conference. And, and, and most importantly to a, a school's revenue, the bulk of which obviously comes, you know, comes from a conference broadcast deals. So I, I've got to believe that it's, it's the president's, you know, sharing sort of their desires and their, their sort of background that they would find ideal with, the, you know, the, the five, six search companies that are, that are doing most of these searches for the, for the commissioner. So I, I, I think you have to sort of bring it back to those that are actually doing you know, doing the hiring, giving a thumbs up or, or a thumbs down, you know, to particular candidates. It used to be, you know, a, a, a history experience in college sports was was paramount. Uh, that's changing. And it's indicative of, you know, the overall changes. I mean, look at a look at a roster of the admin at a Power Five program and you'll find job titles uh, and job descriptions that didn't exist even even ten years ago, right? There's you know pro person, there's personnel managers. I almost said pro personnel because that's what rolls off the tongue. But there's personnel managers, there's general managers, uh, there's uh, informally capologists that are being sort of developed because of this NIL universe that we're in, uh, and those are all uh, sort of mutations from the world of professional sports, and that I think will continue, you know, continue to happen. I know when the Pac-12 job opened, the Pac-12 commissioner job opened, that you came to my mind. And how does the idea of being a Power Five conference commissioner sit with you? It, does that sound like a fun job to you? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, listen, I, I think the, the, the men and women that, that have these positions are, are smart people. They're, they, they love sports, I assume because I don't know all of them, but I assume they have a, a deep appreciation for what college athletics, at least historically, has been a great sort of social mobility vehicle for, for young people coming in, you know, getting scholarships and, you know, making making uh, something of themselves, if you will, developing a network, uh, in some cases going on to professional sports, but obviously, as we all know, the bulk, you know, getting a degree and, and moving on in life, but that's, you know, been a very positive thing. Um, it, it's it's uh, I, I won't say whether I'm interested or not, but you know they they they're, they're all positions that are very important, and I'm certainly glad that uh, you know by and large we we've got very competent people in those positions who who do care about sort of those sort of um, aspects that we often overlook, right? Because uh, you know it's not just about one or two players going pro or you know getting a big fat TV deal. It's about a lot of young people, and you're you're effectively changing their lives, ideally for the better. Albert is. Do you think that your new conference, the United Athletic Conference, is that the start of a, a wave of consolidation, you think, at the FCS level? 
You know, that's a that's a good question. I, I don't know if if I can extrapolate much from yeah. you know, the experience of these nine soon to be 10 schools. Uh, they're all you know regional universities, uh, good programs. They're ambitious. They 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 want to make sure that uh, you know their, their football can be you know can thrive on their respective campuses. I, it, we we've seen with other programs, other conferences, Big Sky, uh, you know the Missouri Valley Football Conference. You don't have to be FBS to have a thriving program on your campus that brings people in on a Saturday afternoon and you know provides that stickiness to to alumni. So it's probably difficult to extrapolate too much. Although I do think. I do think that there are you know, plenty of schools that that find themselves in situations where they may not want to travel a lot of their Olympic sports yeah. that much, you know, a bus league for Olympic sports, but because you only have five, six road games in football, you may want, you know, you may be willing to, to put you know, your, your football team uh, on an airplane, right. To go to you know, uh, location ABC. So the idea of single sport conferences, even though there is currently a moratorium, on that, which goes back to uh, 2020, even before the pandemic, uh, the NCAA may may decide that uh, there's some value in that. Certainly, if, if schools say, "Listen, we we think it makes sense for our football team to play here, uh, but our other sports to play over here," simply whether it's you know financial, whether it's uh, missed class time, there there are a lot of factors that, that kind of fall into that decision. But I I do think that uh, there are some schools that would 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 benefit from that and would like to see. Uh, a, a little bit of a looser designation, if you will. Gotcha. I got you. You know, I, I don't know if there's a big time job in college athletics that you haven't held. Uh, but the thing that the thing that I am most curious about is is your stretch at the NCAA. And, you know, as as an observer of college sports, the NCAA has done so many things over the years, especially the last three or four years that I just don't understand. And I'm hoping that you can explain to us, explain to our listeners how the way the NCAA is structured leads to some of the things that just kind of cause us to scratch our heads, right? Is it a leadership issue? Is it is it the way it's organized and been organized for decades? What did you see inside that can help explain what we see on the outside and makes us is just confounding so often. Well, you know, I, I guess the analogy would be our federal government. And, you know, there's dozens of committees, you know, you vote for, for so-and-so to be a Senator or to be your congressional representative, that individual gets put on a handful of different committees. Uh, you know, sometimes you're in the majority, sometimes you're in the minority. You may agree in, in large part with your, you know, with your representative and how he or she feels about issue X, Y, Z. Uh, but, you know, that may not be reflected at all in the product coming out of, you know, of a subcommittee or a working group or whatever you want to call it. There's something like 200 and some committees at the NCAA when you take oh. one, two and three. And they are often populated by solid people, uh, but they may be, you know, coming from a much smaller Division One school, one of the old AAA schools, as we used to call them, right? That you know yep. pretty much live with basketball, uh, and then you go down to D two and D three, and there's such a variety of institutions, and you know, you guys know this, and people have said it a thousand times before, but you know what uh, Siena once or Iona. <laughs> 
right, in their you know world in uh, in the Northeast, it might be fundamentally different than what uh, UCLA and Alabama want, right? Uh, because they're they're different they're different entities. There's you know one's a couple hundred million dollar a year operation, and the other might be a, I don't know ten million dollar, eight million dollar, twelve million dollar with with different values and sort of a different not not necessarily different values, but sort of different circumstances that they have to operate under. And as a result, you know, uh, some good decisions come out of the NCAA and then some decisions, John, as you say, you kind of scratch your head and say, how could that happen? Uh, but it's because you've got, you know, sort of different uh, eyeglasses uh, in right. terms of, of, of people looking different lenses in terms of people looking at that particular problem and the best way to solve it. And, and there's, you know, there, there are traditionalists who would love to to turn the clock back a little bit, even 10 years yep. or so you know, uh, to, to get back to a, a more sort of a clear era in terms of the relationship that a student athlete has with his or her institution. And then there are folks, and you, you all know uh, many of them, who have said, you know, the NCAA has got to hurry up and fix this thing. And there's got to be profit sharing. And maybe we got to be prepared for employees and, you know, different different models, different structures. And there's often, you know, clashes uh, with the consistency of those decisions coming out of the NCAA. Yeah, well, we certainly could get to a lot of those, uh, the issues with you here, the NIL, the portal, all that. Uh, is there, if you could wave a magic wand and fix or change the structure of the NCAA in any way that to help college athletics going forward, is there, is there an easy option or is an easy answer to that i'm not sure there's an easy answer i i do think that there you know this idea and it, it, it it's taking on uh, some momentum this idea of, of a more federated structure so that you know you've got uh, the you know the fbs schools making decisions about fbs matters right, right? and those issues affect fbs schools and guess what they don't affect you know, the old AAA schools, right? Because they're not part of FBS. So let FBS decide what it wants to be and let the AAA schools decide what they want to be, et cetera, et cetera. So the question is, how many different entities, you know, do you really want to have, you know, federate, you know, a, a federation? And do you cut it off at the Power Five? Do you cut it off at all of FBS? You know, is FCS that fundamental? The top of FCS is awful good, right? Right. You know, I mean, you got the, 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 the all the schools in the Dakotas, the Montanas that, you know, play pretty good football. The, yep. You know, uh, I mean, there's, 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 so that's, that's a tough issue, but I, I do think, you know, we, we need more divisions than are reflected in sort of division, the current division one, two, and three. I see. The transfer portal and NIL come up on a daily basis. I talked to a Pac-12 coach this morning who said it is a year-round thing. Uh, you're thinking about it constantly. I have to know, what do you make of name, image, likeness and the transfer portal? Well, uh, you know, both NIL and the portal are products of this new relationship, right? The empowerment of the student-athlete and the changing of the power structure. Uh, and and I, I think everybody would probably agree it needs it needed to be changed and modified. Uh, what worries me about the portal is not so much the opportunity for a student athlete he or she can decide you know, I want to go somewhere else. I want to uh, I'm I, you know I lost my coach or uh, or whatever it may be. I'm worried quite honestly, and I'm totally old school in this sentiment, and it's probably not shared widely. I'm worried about the academics of transferring. 
I mean, it used to be that, that, that you know, the receiving school wouldn't necessarily acknowledge all the credits from the giving school. And it seems like, you know, that, that's been sort of, you know, cast to the wind. So I think the NCAA needs to take a, a now that we've had the portal for, what, a couple of years, needs to take a pretty hard look at the effect that the portal is having on graduation rates. Because at the end of the day, the, the you know, purpose of college athletics is still to give young men and women an education and, and you know, give them a, a legitimate opportunity to graduate and, and start their, their lives. So I, I, I'm worried about sort of the academic carnage, if you will, that comes out of, you know, the constant uh, transferring, you know, from school A to B, in some cases to both C and D, right? It seems like uh, that's, that's an issue. Listen, NIL... Um, is uh, probably long overdue, right? When you go back to, you know, coaches getting in trouble like Rick Majerus for giving a kid a hamburger or something, right? Uh, or, you know, somebody getting in trouble for letting a kid sleep on the, the, the sofa, uh, you know, uh, because that was, a, a you know, a, a benefit that they didn't deserve, right? And wasn't consistent with the NCAA rulebook. So uh, amateurism is dead. You know, God rest his soul, uh, did play an important <laughs> role for many, many years. Uh, but it was a concept that, you know, just didn't match uh, the, you know, the, the free, free enterprise system that we have in this country. And, and the fact that everybody, you know, needs to, to make money, right, to generate revenue. So uh, I think the NCAA would be wise to, to, to try to put a couple of guardrails in place. But at the end of the day, I would say N- NIL is working, Right. Uh, there's all sorts of smaller things that could be fixed, but you know, if if the goal was to allow a student athlete the freedom to monetize his or her name, image, and likeness, you know, through uh, the use of an agent or through a collective that's you know been been built for that particular institution, that's what's happening, and and money is flowing. How much nobody knows because there's really no no disclosure requirement to speak of, but uh, money is flowing. Uh, to the student athletes, and it's a uh, you know I would say it's a pretty darn good time uh, to be a you know a, a scholarship player at, at a major school where where the alumni care enough that they want to provide some you know some financial benefit to the student athletes. So I take it that you don't necessarily think the NCAA pleading with Congress for help on NIL is necessarily the answer here. I mean, there's an argument that, you know, that all these state laws uh, cause some confusion and give a benefit to state X over state Y, right? Yeah. Because of the state NIL rule. You know, listen, we live in a federal system and there's lots of rules that aren't consistent from state to state to state. Look at marijuana laws. Look at gambling laws, right? And that hasn't destroyed the NCAA. So I, I'm just, I'm not a, a, you know, necessarily a political uh, expert, I, I think it would be a difficult task for Governor Baker, the new NCAA president, who has a, a great understanding of politics, better than perhaps you know any any of us in the aggregate, even. Uh, but I, I think it's a tough ask to go to Congress because you know most industries that have gone to Congress and pleaded for for help, you know, Congress uh, you don't always get exactly what you want. You usually get it loaded up with with other you know, other sort of obligations. So I, I, I just don't know if that's a realistic approach. Did, did you, you know, I've heard that Mark Emmert wanted to implement some form of NIL 10, 12 years ago when the O'Bannon case was just starting, but the membership wasn't ready to go there. And if they had only done that and been proactive, a lot of this would have been 
nipped in the bud. Do you have any insight on the the NCAA's original view of of the concept of NIL? I think early in Mark Emmert's tenure, and I, it was, it was, I was just an AD at that point in, in, in my alma mater, West Virginia, and I remember that Mark uh, championed and actually passed a $2,000 stipend uh, for scholarship athletes. And that was then overridden at, I think, the, the, the next NCAA convention. That was all you know, properly constitutional, if you will, you know, given the NCAA's uh, governance structure. Uh, and, and anyway, I think Mark, um, you know, uh, betrayed might be too hard of a word, you know, but I think yeah. Mark felt somewhat betrayed that he put himself out there, you know, advocated for uh, a $2,000 stipend. You know, think about that. And this was, this was before full cost of attendance. Uh, yep. which in many cases is four or 5,000 per, per student per year. This was before the Alston decision, obviously, and the Alston money, which is what, you know, up to almost $6,000 yep. a year. Uh, but anyway, I think Mark uh, made that effort, clearly, uh, felt a little bit betrayed, you know, by the fact that the membership overrode it, again, constitutionally proper, given the NCAA structure. And I think that that gave him an indication, probably, of the difficulty you know, of reform from within, as opposed to reform uh, from without, right? Yep. The external pressures coming from a court or a state or federal legislature. Years ago, I covered Jerry Tarkanian and I covered Bobby Knight as a beat reporter. I want to ask you about the NCAA and when it comes to investigation. It seems that that NCAA was very different in how it approached investigations. What do you make of that or how do we explain that? Because today we watch a whole bunch of investigations that seemingly drag on for years and years and years and go nowhere. Well, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a different world. Um, you know, you've got athletic programs, certainly at the Power Five level, that have their own legal staff. Uh, you know, you've got uh, coaches who are more sophisticated than uh, ever before you know, in a sense of, all the, you know, the, the bylaws and regulations that they have to, uh, to live with. Um, you know, there's much more money uh, in college athletics than, than there was. You know, I graduated 1982, and I think our head football coach, Don Nealon, NFL, NFL College Football Hall of Famer, you know, may have been making, you know, $200,000 as, as the head football coach or something, right? Uh, not necessarily that much more than a you know, the dean of the medical school or the, you know, the president of the university. So, you know, the money's exploded. The attention has exploded. The interesting thing for me is, you know, with all the changes in the last three, four years and, you know, uh, maybe older, more traditional folks, uh, you know, saying, uh, listen, I can't watch this anymore, et cetera. But think about it. The TV ratings are through the roof. <laughs> the, right. you know, attendance figures. Uh, aside from students, and you always have a problem with students going to games, but attendance figures across college football, college basketball are solid, right? Ticket prices are up. I mean, it doesn't seem as though any of the activity, NIL, the portal, at this point, it doesn't seem like it's affected sort of the, that, that average viewer. You know, Joe Sixpack, who just loves to watch the college game, doesn't really care if the point guard or the quarterback is driving, you know, a brand new truck, right? He shrugs his shoulders and says, as long as he can throw that 15 yard out, out pattern, I'm, you know, I'm supportive. That that's the interesting thing. It, it can, the sport change and change the dynamics 
without sort of alienating uh, you know, a large uh, portion or even a small portion of its fan base. And it doesn't seem like that's, that's happened. In fact, I would argue you guys focused on college, but of course you, 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 you all, you know, the NFL pretty well. When I was working for the national football league, I was always incredibly impressed with how they took a, you know, four month a year sport and turned it into a 12 month a year sport, right? No better than this week with the draft coming up and, you know, the, the combines and pro days and free agency and everything. Right. So in a sense, the NFL did that certainly purposefully. In a sense, college has done that unintentionally with NIL and the portal. People are talking about, you know, the portal right now because the window is open and, you know, half the Colorado football team seems to want to cram into that portal. And that's creating content and people are following it and asking themselves, boy, should we get this guy or this guy? So almost unintentionally, unpurposefully, college athletics are sort of backed into this 24-7, 365 a year uh, sort of uh, event that's just constantly happening. There's never there's never a downtime, right? No, that's uh, – speaking from personal experience, I could say July is pretty darn busy too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what do you think – what is the future on the football front for Stanford, for Northwestern, Wake Forest, Vanderbilt, Duke? You know, how are those schools going to come? And there's others. How do sure. you see them competing given where this thing is headed? Well, I mean, the question I think you're asking, John, is can the rigorous academic institutions that do have I mean, legitimate admission requirements. Yes. You know, are, are they going to be able to continue to compete? Because they have off and on, right? You know, Northwestern is up and then maybe down. Stanford you know, was up and, you know, now it's down a little bit. Uh, I, I think the answer is yes. I think they do have to take sort of a long, deep, hard look at, at NIL and at the transfer portal. You know, those, those two mechanisms that currently are, you know, helping uh, the big state schools uh, sort of improve their position or solidify their position yep. at the top of the barrel. They've got to ask themselves, what what can we offer? What can we do that's consistent with the values of you know Vanderbilt or Stanford or Northwestern, et cetera? Um, you know, they they have some advantages, which is an incredibly uh, um, wealthy and affluent uh, you know alumni base. Uh, they've got the uh, you know some of the finest sort of brands, if you will, in terms of kids wanting to go to college and, and you know, those at least who understand that their odds of playing professional sports are, are you know, slim and none. Uh, what's better than to come out after four years or five years with a undergraduate and a master's degree from a Vanderbilt or Northwestern or, you know, Duke or Stanford or whatever it may be. So I'm, I'm, I'm still fairly bullish that they, they can be competitive. Uh, but, you know, if history is any guide, they, they'll, they'll have their ups and then they'll have their downs and they just, maybe won't be as consistent yeah. as some of the bigger state schools that really have a, you know, a system in place. You look at what, you know, Nick Saban's done at Alabama and he's got a system right. going that it's, you know, virtually unstoppable in terms of almost guaranteeing 11, 12 wins a year. Right. Right. Do you, would you bet that by the end of the decade, athletes will be deemed in the revenue sports will be deemed employees, semi-employees and will have access to, to athletic department revenue directly for, you know, graduation funds or annual stipends? You know, I, I, if any, if there's any, you know, cautionary tale coming out of 
the situation in Colorado, which I'm following a little bit. I'm friends with Rick George. I live yeah. in the state of Colorado. Uh, so I'm, I'm following that. It's that, you know, be careful what you wish for student athletes. Uh, you know, so, you know, I don't know how many players went into the portal from, you know, from the Buffalo football team. And obviously they, they had a pretty lousy season last year and can certainly understand the desire to you know, swap out uh, almost every player. But, you know, as a, as an employee, you know, look what's happening around the country, right? Yeah. You know, ESPN's laying off 7,000 employees and, you know, Facebook or Meta or whatever uh, they are, you know, 20,000 and, you know, 3M is laying off 15,000, right? So if you're an employee, you're a cog in the system. The three of us in this call realize that uh, because we've all worked and I'm sure have all been, you know, laid off at some, at some point. So, I think, you know, student athletes have to be a little bit careful of what they wish for. I, I do believe that schools should really take a hard look and the NCAA should take a hard look at some sort of revenue share, some sort of stipend that, that could be provided. I mean, cold, hard cash, if you will, much like full cost of attendance and Austin money, uh, because it's it's. It's difficult to imagine that the system with all the money coming into a Big Ten or an SEC school, it's hard to imagine that, that uh, student athletes don't deserve it's, it's at, at some level of, right. of financial you know, compensation, remuneration, uh, as they would say. I don't know if that needs to be in the form of an employee, though. That brings a whole body of labor law yes. into the situation. and. And it may not really be the best thing for, for student athletes. Uh, you know, coaches make mistakes when they recruit. They have to predict what a kid, project what a kid's going to look like two, three years on. And you know, those mistakes um, can, be, can be costly, right, as we're seeing now. Uh, but gosh, if it were really a true employer-employee relationship, um, I think that, that that may not be in the best interest of the majority of students. Let's put it that, student athletes. And that's you know, it's 500,000 of them. Obviously, we talk about, you know, Power 5 football, right? Uh, Power 5 men's basketball and, and, and some other sports as well. But, uh, you know, I, I think there, there has to be a much more sort of holistic view uh, and, and not just proceed sort of in a blind fashion to the point where, oh, let's let's have all these kids be uh, you know, young men and young women be employees. A lot of our listeners, uh, Oliver, are familiar with your son, Andrew Luck, played at Stanford great career. I want to know what was that like for you as a parent to, to watch your kid navigate that college experience? Well, I had, I got four kids and three of them played uh, college sports. I had a daughter who played volleyball at Stanford and a son who played soccer at Yale. Um, they're all slouches. You can tell, right. But um, they, they took after my wife, by the way, who went to Rice, right. And I went to the, I'm the public school guy in my family, <laughs> university, university of Texas school of law. But anyway, uh, you know, I'd say two things, John. One is it, it's awesome to watch your kids perform, you know, whether they're, you know, in, in fifth grade Pop Warner football or in middle school or high school or in college. You know, it's it's fun to watch your kids win and lose because, you know, losing really, you know, helps kids learn maybe more lessons than winning. So it's great to watch you know, college athletics and, and watch these kids succeed. The other thing is think about, in the youth sport world, right, going, you know, middle school, high school, all the club sports, how important sports are to so many families. Why? Because they all want their kid to get a scholarship. And very often they pay more money, right, over the course of three or four years in terms of youth soccer and basketball and baseball and, 
and all the different sports, swimming and gymnastics, right? Then then they then they're saving right from from a scholarship, but it's not the savings they're really interested in. It's the ability and the opportunity and the experience that a kid has playing a college sport. It's still a very special thing. It's the hardest thing I did in my life is playing college football and trying to be a, a good, you know, a good student and also enjoy, you know, a little bit of a personal life. Uh, it's a it's, it's it's a great lesson in all sorts of things, right? To be a college athlete, how to manage your time, all these things that we talk about. But as long as is the majority of American parents seem very interested in supporting their young kids, you know, middle school, high school, in that effort, I think we'll see um, in, incredible competition and in, 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 in a great sort of proving ground for those 500 young men and women who become college athletes, just like that's a great proving ground, right? It's at the tip of the pyramid in our professional and Olympic sports. Can you imagine your son, Andrew, at Stanford with the current NIL rules? I mean, that would have been that would have been something. Yeah, that's a great question. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, Stanford was certainly attractive to Andrew because uh, number one is a great institution, right? Number two, uh, Jim Harbaugh was there, and, and Andrew was a quarterback. And as you guys know, Jim Harbaugh was a pretty good quarterback. And I remember telling Andrew when Stanford hired Jim, I said, you know, Andrew, here's a guy that could teach you a lot about playing quarterback. And I felt the same way, by the way, about the school across the bay, Jeff Tedford. Jeff Tedford coached some great quarterbacks and was a pretty good player himself. And uh, so he had, you know, those are two schools that he was very, very interested in. But to show you, you know, what what Stanford means, I mean, Andrew's back getting a master's at Stanford. And my daughter, who played volleyball there, she graduated in 2014 undergrad. She just finished her MBA there last year. So, you know, there, there's something special about that campus, I think, even with NIL opportunities perhaps elsewhere that uh, certainly you know those two kids of mine would have gravitated towards Stanford because there's you know as Stanford says and it's a little bit cliched but you know it's a 40-year decision to attend school there and and again that's hard for a young person to sort of comprehend but I I think it is true and and certainly parents would understand that encourage their kids if they have a you know an opportunity to go to Stanford to to absolutely sign up it's a fantastic institution. So for you being a college student, college athlete, that was harder than being a pro quarterback. Yes, just because of the time management stress, or it's it's you're you're on a campus, you're away from home for the first time, and all that you know that it means to be away from home. Uh, I you know was a, a good student and wanted to be a good student because you know, I had no idea if I uh, would have the ability to play professional football. Uh, or, and, and if I did, how long my career would be. So, you know, managing uh, practices and all the schedule that you have, managing your academic schedule. And when you're in college, you want to have a little bit of fun taking advantage of things on campus uh, that, uh, that are enjoyable. I thought it was the hardest thing that I had done in terms of squeezing all of that into a, you know, a 24-hour uh, day, quite honestly. And I thought it was more challenging than professional football where – You've got one job and one job only, which is, you know, show the practice at 730 and you're there until four o'clock. And once you're, you know, then, then you're free. Now, having said that, I did attend law school in the off season, right? It actually took a couple of classes during the season at, at a law school in Houston. I played for the Oilers. That was, you know, was hard, but I'd been prepared for it because of my four years, you know, in, in college as an undergrad. Uh, so I, it, it, it's a hard thing. I think a lot of 
uh, pro ball players would say that, uh, you know, assuming that they really made an effort to go to class and do this, the work and the studies, that it was one of the harder, if not the hardest thing they've done. Oliver, I'm always looking for a good book. Um, what? Give me a book that you've read that has stayed with you, that's had an impact on your life. Um, my my favorite uh, book uh, is um, written by a, a, a guy named John McPhee. Uh, he's a, a pretty uh, pretty good writer, a prolific writer. I wrote a lot of essays as well. He's a a science writer that writes uh, prose in a way that a non-science person can understand and appreciate. And uh, he wrote a book called The Annals of the Former World, which was a takeoff on the title of a book that had argued in the Middle Ages that the Earth was only like, you know, 400 years old or something. Uh, and I did know a thing about geology and how, you know, how long our earth had existed and why it looks the way it does. And, you know, the, um, the plate tectonics, all those things I probably should have uh, <laughs> learned in, in, in college or high school, but I didn't. And uh, that was a book that just gave me a complete insight in a very sort of uh, uh, friendly way, uh, in a simple way into the activities of, of uh, this beautiful round planet that we call, you know, Mother Earth. Now, I'm probably not answering your question very well, uh, but that's it's a book that it's my go to when I when I need to, you know, sort of just relax and, and appreciate powers much bigger than than those that we have. I wrote it. You know, he also I'm, wrote a great book about Bill Bradley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he wrote a book about Bill Bradley. Uh, he, uh, you know, basically this book on the animals of the former world is a combination of four smaller books he wrote where he literally drove from the East Coast, New York City, all the way out West uh, and, and talked about, you know, why is the East Coast look like the East Coast and why do the Appalachians look like the Appalachians and why is the, the great Midwest, the great Midwest because of the basalt dome and why does the West, which is really the most fascinating part of our country in terms of the geology, why does the West, the Rockies, the, 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 um, Bain, uh, range and basin area in California. Uh, you know, why does that look like it is? I mean, you know, California was an island at some point, you know, millions and millions and millions of years ago that sort of bumped up into the West Coast, and that's why you got the Sierra, et cetera. Those were sort of fundamental questions that I had, and I thought, I can't really be a functioning adult if I don't understand a little bit about a lot of things, and there's not much I understand, but this helped me understand geology. Best advice you ever got? Do you what comes to mind when I ask you about the best advice that you ever received? Oh gosh, that's a it, it's a it's a good question. Um, you know, like everybody, I've had you know mentors uh, over the years. Um, the best advice I got, I I, I, I finished law school, uh, had had just retired from the auditors, took you know took the bar exam, got married. My wife's a lawyer as well. We met at the University of Texas law school and i had of all things an opportunity to go over to, to europe and work for the nfl this is when they were launching what became nfl europe my mother's german i speak the language i'd been to germany you know many times i'd actually studied over there for a year so i felt very capable that i could you know do the job with the frankfurt galaxy which was a franchise in frankfurt but i was kind of unsure you know should i go over to europe you know how long would this last and uh, Paul Tagliabue, who at that point had just become the NFL uh, commissioner, uh, you know, had, had said to me and his brother, John, was the bureau chief for the New York Times in Berlin. 
And, uh, you know, Paul said, uh, you know, my brother, John, uh, loved Berlin and has been over there for I don't know how many years. John Tagliabue was the bureau chief over there. And uh, he said, yeah, you're young. Uh, you've got uh, life ahead of you. You know, take an opportunity to, to, to you know, do something that uh, you, you, you don't know what the end result is going to be. And we, my wife and I went over to Frankfurt. Uh, Andrew was about a one-year-old at the time or one and a half-year-old. And uh, we had three kids uh, over in Europe. I spent 10 years and uh, both I, my wife, our family, we loved it. We had a, we had a marvelous time. And uh, that was just good advice, you know, to kind of roll the dice a little bit, particularly when you're young. Maybe not do that when you're in your 40s or 50s and your kids are in high school, et cetera. It's a different dynamic with the family. But uh, that was good advice from, from uh, a person that I really admire and respect, uh, you know, the former NFL commissioner, Paul Tagliabue. Well, we can't. I mean, this is a, in some ways it's uh, a lesson on how college sports works, but you know, just I can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, I don't know anybody that's got broader perspective on on the industry, and uh, I, I've certainly learned a bunch here just in the last forty five minutes alone. Well, I listen. I appreciate y'all having me. I appreciate your coverage of of uh, you know college sports writ large, and then particularly the you know the Pac twelve. So uh, I'll continue to to watch, and thank you for having me on. Talk to y'all. Really good. I I mean, I think you hit on it, Wilner, that there are very few people that have been an athlete, have been an administrator, who have sort of the umbrella of perspective that Oliver Luck has on the game. And a couple things that jumped out at me. I mean, I'm, I'm focused on the ecosystem of college athletics. I heard him say that, you know, even though the SEC and the Big Ten, you know, appear to be out front, he doesn't necessarily see the uh, you know the other players evaporating here, and I think if you're a Pac-12 fan, you had to grab onto that a little bit and go, okay, like you know, what is this system going to look like in 2030, 2035, 2040? Yeah, for sure. And also, you know, I I thought it was interesting. He he referenced the Colorado mass exodus into the transfer portal as you know, be careful what you wish for, right? Because the athletes want more freedom, more economic rights, uh, but in terms of employment, be eventually becoming employees or semi-employees, be careful with what you wish for on that front too. That was an interesting parallel. You know, he's obviously he's following things very closely nationally. Uh, just has has the you know three hundred and sixty degree, seven hundred and twenty degree insight into college sports in some ways. You know, with his personal experience and and as a parent, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, look, my, I, I've mentioned this before, but before his passing, it was one of the conversations I had with Mike Leach. He he said, hey, if we're going to go to employees, um, all right, this is going to be like the NFL. I'll have the right to cut a, yeah. cut a player, you know, a week before the season and leave them without somewhere to go. Like, you know, if you want to be an employee, here you go. There's some baggage that comes with it. The other thing was like, you know, when he starts talking about the book that he read, his life experience, Germany. <laughs> Doesn't the retirement of Andrew Luck make a lot more sense maybe to people who don't understand the Luck fi family dynamic? Yeah, Andrew Luck once, once read a book on concrete. So, uh, yeah, no, that's for sure. It's, uh, it's a little bit different family than what you typically find for, for college, uh, college athletics, at least on, you know, at, the, at the high end of the football uh, level, no doubt. I also thought it was interesting when he mentioned – I had no idea. NCAA across all the divisions has got 200 and something committees. Is that what the number 200? Yeah, try to get committees? something done. Try to get something that done. That blew my mind. Yeah. 
It makes sense. And that, exp- that explains a lot. Yeah, it makes sense. And like, try to, I, I, I think the beauty, like, think our listeners to think of their own family dynamic. How do you make a decision where to go on vacation, whether to go to a movie, where are we going for dinner? Uh, are you going to do a home improvement project? Imagine having 200 committees involved in some decisions and yep. and then try to get anything done. It explains how ineffective the NCAA has been. Yeah, and you know, this is a good opener in some ways for us cuz right there's a lot of there's a lot of things directions we can go take what he said and really kind of explore some of the other things, uh, some of the issues facing the NCAA, you know, sports specific, conference specific, but uh, it, just a great overview of, of the state of affairs. I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. Get a free subscription, get a paid subscription. Uh, whatever works for you works for me. John Wilner, you can get him at pac12hotline.com. We're going to bring big guests on this podcast uh, about every other week. We're going to have a big guest and uh, appreciate everybody who subscribes. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast if you haven't already. And we will be back next week with an all new episode. Thanks, everybody.